How are y'all doing this morning? Great. All right. Before anybody think this is a rust-colored coat, it's not crimson. All right. So let's just get that out of the way right off the bat. I will not tell you who my allegiance is to because I want you all to listen to the sermon this morning. So, um, yeah, so that, that video is representative of some of the things that the Lord has blessed us to be able to, um, to equip and to walk alongside local churches to do. Um, I, I, I want to start this morning um, with a text, and, and so let's, let's begin in the Word, and, and we're going to kind of weave our way through several places in the Scriptures, but you, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, um, turn to Mark chapter 12. Now, you know, one of the things about our, our culture that, that continues to sort of baffle me is, is the fact that I think we really struggle to, to get an accurate picture and to really have an accurate picture in our minds and in our hearts of, of, like, of really who Jesus is. Even though we have the Gospels and even though we have the stories laid out right in front of us, I, I think it's, it's difficult many times for us to really get the, the essence of who Jesus is. I mean, think about it. A, a lot of you probably grew up like I did. I, I had a grandmother who lived down in Atmore that we used to go visit all the time and spend time with her. She had this picture on her wall of Jesus, right? It was a painting, right? It wasn't a picture because they didn't have cameras back then. Amen? Okay, are you with me? Come on. Come on, you're going to have to help me today, okay? So, but, but you remember that picture? You know, and Jesus was, was sort of this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, kind of pale-looking guy with, with hair that looked like it belonged on Farrah Fawcett, not on, not on a, a guy. And, and that, was, that was a little weird to me because the Jesus that I read about in the Bible was, Jesus was a carpenter. He was, he was a guy that worked with his hands. He was, he, was, he was strong. He was authoritative. I mean, think about the movies and, and the depictions of Jesus that we see in the movies, right? Why does Jesus always talk with a British accent? I mean, just once, I want him to come out and go like, hey, y'all, let's get together here. We're going to go. We're going to change the world. I just want him to talk like us right? But he doesn't. He's always sort of this British talking, kind of aloof sort of guy who's really removed and kind of struggles with relationships. He looks like he has this faraway look in his eyes, like he's looking through people and not looking at people. But what we see in the New Testament is not someone who looked through people. We, look, we see someone who, who wanted to be with the people that he created. We, we see someone who came and engaged and he lived among the people and he healed and he empathized with hurts and, and, and there, there, was this, there was this real life empathy. One of the other things we don't see a lot in the depictions of Jesus around us is we don't see a lot about Jesus' sense of humor. Jesus is really a funny guy. He, he said things and did things that were incredibly funny. He, he was a little ironic at times. There were even some times where Jesus bordered on being sarcastic. And that's kind of the passage that we're looking at today. A really familiar passage. It's known as the, as, as the, the rendering of the great commandment. But I want to take a look at this story and I want us to unpack it. Looking at what it looked like through the eyes of someone who, who, was, who was in the first century that was viewing Jesus as, as a contemporary. So... If you, if you have your Bible, we're in Mark chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 28. And it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw this, he answered wisely, and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, so let's get the picture here. This scribe that comes up, that, that, that comes to Jesus to ask him this question, let, let's understand what the role of a scribe was. A scribe in Israel was basically, he was like the Xerox copier in Israel. Okay, he was, he was essentially responsible for copying letter by letter, word by word, the word of God in, to make more copies of the scriptures. And so he spent his day being this very meticulous, very precise, very pointed kind of guy who, who was going letter by letter, jot and tittle, one after the other, to make sure that he was passing down copies of God's word that were completely accurate. Now, because scribes spent so much time in the Word, and they spent so much time engaged in the Word, and they spent so much time around the Word, they, they kind of, their, their role sort of grew um, throughout the history of Israel. In the beginning, they were really just responsible for copying the Word. But later, scribes kind of became what were almost like spiritual lawyers in Israel. They were the people that the rest of the people went to when they wanted to understand the word of God and, and when they wanted to understand what they had to do to please God. Now, now, what that means, quite honestly, and let's just be honest about what people were doing when they were going to the scribes. Most often, people weren't going to the scribes saying, hey, tell me how much I can give. Tell me what I can do. Tell me how far I can go and tell me how much I can, I can dive into a relationship with God. That's not what they were doing at all. People were going to the scribe and they were basically asking, what's, what's minimum obedience? Like, what can I get away with here? How little do I have to give? Is it 10%? Is it less than 10%? Is it, is it a few hours of my day? Is it a sacrifice of a dove? Or do I really have to give a bull? I mean, really, really and truly, they were going because they were trying to figure out where their relationship with God fit into their lives, and they were trying to put it into a box and, 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 and make it a, 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 you know, something that they could control and something that didn't really inconvenience too much of their lives. Now, here's the funny thing about this scribe. He, part, of his, part of his role and part of what happened traditionally over the years is that the scribe even had like a, a, like a costume, like a uniform that he would wear. And that's, that's kind of the funny, ironic part of this passage of Scripture because, you see, this scribe had a couple of really remarkable things that he was wearing that, that just, when you read it in, in light of, of, of what we see that Jesus says to him here, it's, it's crazy. One, he had this thing called a phylactery, which was like a leather box, or a wooden box with, a, with like a leather strap that was tied around his head. And inside that box, there were, there were scraps of paper with four passages of Scripture written on those, pass, on, on, that, on those pieces of paper. He also would wear these things, kind of these leather straps that would wrap around his sleeves and, and would hang down from his hands like two or three feet beyond the end. So, so it was almost like he, was, he had these like leather whips that were hanging off the ends of, his, ends of his hands, and there were several of them. And they were, now, can you imagine walking around? Can you imagine if your job was to sit all day and to copy the scriptures and to make copies of scripture and, and you were writing all the time with these three or four leather straps hanging off of your, your hands. I mean, it had to be miserable, right? 
I mean, you go down and you sit down to eat or you try to do anything and you've got these, these straps that are slapping you all over the place and you're having to move them out of the way and, and, and they're, they're, they're constantly in your way. But you see, that was the point. Because in that box that was tied between his eyes, there was one of the passages of Scripture was Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You see, the passage of Scripture, this, this guy is coming to Jesus and he's basically making a professional call on Jesus saying, Jesus, you're a pretty good teacher, so, so why don't you tell me which is like the most important commandment? And what he was asking is, like, Jesus, can you sort of sum it up and point one out over all the others so I can use that in my profession so that I can tell people how they can get away with, with not really giving their whole life to God, but, but how they can just be sort of minimally obedient to God. And Jesus looks at him and says, are you serious? You have completely missed the big E on the eye chart, my friend. You've got it tied right between your eyes. You've got leather straps that are hanging off of your, your wrist that are flopping around, and all of that is there to serve to remind you every moment of every day in every waking moment that you have that your life is to be lived as a worship service to God, that your whole life and all of you, not minimally but maximally, everything that you are and everything that you have is to be directed toward God our Father whom we love and whom we serve. And oh, by the way, out of the abundance of, of that love for God, you're supposed to serve and love the world like God serves and loves the world. And you totally missed it. Now here's the thing. I could be incredibly critical of this scribe, but if I look in the mirror, I have to acknowledge to you that there was a point in my life where I came face to face with the idea that I was the scribe. About 13 years ago, my wife and I were serving at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary up in Louisville, Kentucky. At a PhD, was teaching men and women to prepare for ministry, was, was, was giving my life to preparing people to lead the church was in a job that was like the dream career, the place that I always wanted to be, the, the, the existence that I thought God had cut me out for. And one evening, we were sitting eating supper, and my wife said to me, she said, I've been praying, and I want you to know I think the Lord's calling us out to adopt. I didn't even, like, put my fork down. I just told her No. No way. That's crazy. I mean, I've seen Dateline. I know how this can go, right? This can be difficult. You know, I, I started thinking about, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a professor's salary, you know, the, like a teacher's salary. We can't, we can't afford that. What if something crazy happens? What if, what if, that, what if that child's sick? What if, what if that child, what if we, if we extend ourselves and we go halfway around the world and we adopt a child and then we come home and that child doesn't love us back? So I just said no. It was just easier to turn my back and ignore it. Now I want you to know, I'm going to walk down here on the front pew and grab my water because I'm three minutes into the sermon now. I know, some of you guys are going, this is going to be a long morning. 
I'm teasing. But I already have cotton mouth. But, but, the, but the thing is that, that, that in the midst of all of that questioning, my wife didn't play fair. You, you see, she, what she did, she didn't like, like start leaving notes on, on the mirror and lipstick. She didn't start putting post-it notes with scripture passages on my steering wheel. She didn't put pictures of, of like, you know, little children with, you know, really sad eyes all over the house. She didn't leave open Bibles around. She really, she did something completely unfair. She started praying, right? And she modeled the, the, the prayer of the persistent widow. She just kept going back before the Father over and over and over again and, 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 and kept saying, Lord, I know that you've placed this in my heart. And I know because you've placed this in my heart that you can do something in, 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 to get through the, that thick skull of my husband. And so she just trusted the Lord with me. How dare she, all right? And I have to tell you, the Lord began to work in my heart in a way that I cannot really fully describe to you. The, the best way I can say it is that I was just like disquieted in my spirit. I was, I was just, you know, it was like, it was like there, was this, there was this sense that there was, there was sort of this weight that was hanging over and this the, kind of this unresolvable tension. And, and, and I just continue to feel it. Charles Spurgeon talks about this, this idea that, that about being pursued by the hounds of heaven. Well, I felt like I was being pursued by the hounds of heaven. I felt like God, was, God was, was just wearing me out. And I knew what it was about, right? But I didn't want to admit it, right? Because I'm a stubborn man. <laughs> and, and so I didn't, I didn't want to admit that the Lord was, was up to something. And I was scared and I was frightened of the implications of it. And I had tons of questions. And so there was a point where I'm a Bible nerd. And so, you know, I knew that, that there, were, there were passages in the Old Testament that talked about orphans and, and there were passages in the New Testament, particularly out of the book of James, that talk about our responsibility to, to, to care for orphans. But, but the truth is that I didn't really understand much of how all that stuff fit together. Even after all the Sunday school classes and all the sermons and all the seminary classes and all the systematic theology and all the books and all that stuff, it still didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And so I began to just to dig in the scriptures because, because ultimately the question that I felt like I had to wrestle with and I had to answer is, Lord, where are you in the middle of this? How does this relate to the gospel? How is this not just a good thing? How is this a great thing? How does, how does this point people to Jesus for us to do this kind of thing? Because you see, I grew up in a church just like the church that many of you grew up in where we were scared of all that social justice and social ministry kind of stuff. That we've been told that our responsibility is that our responsibility is to go out and to, and to witness to people and to tell them about Jesus and to tell them how they can follow Jesus and how they can be rescued from their sins and how they can follow Jesus as a disciple. But let's don't talk about all the, all the hurts that people have in their lives and all the, all the, the circumstances of, of hunger and, and disease and all those things. That, let's, let's, let's just worry about their, their eternal state. Let's worry about their physical state. And what I want to tell you is that when I, be, when I went and I began to look for it, what I found is I found that God has an agenda for us with regard to people who can't care for themselves. And it relates directly to the gospel. It doesn't lead us away from the gospel. It leads us deeper into the gospel. Let me show you a passage of scripture that illustrates that. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. 
Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, let's understand where we are and what Moses is doing, what he's up to. He's basically gone through about three chapters up to this point where he's, he's telling Israel about their history. And he's helping them to remember who they are and who God's called them to be and why God, God's called them out to be a people. And so he's kind of right at the end of the summary of all that, and he's talking about how God wants Israel to live ethically. And by proxy, he's telling us as people who follow him how he wants us to live ethically. And he gives us a clue of where the gospel is in the middle of all of this question, even as far back as in the Old Testament. So beginning in verse 16, he says this. He says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. Some of you, I now have your attention. And be no longer stubborn. But that's a really important detail. For the Lord your Lord... For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial, who takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now, don't miss this point. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that you have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. What is he saying? What's all that, what's all that business about, about circumcising your heart? What he's saying is he's saying I, I'm not interested in an outward change from you. For those of you that follow me, for those of you that have yielded your lives, and he's talking to Israel, those of you who have been called out to follow me, I'm not interested in what you do on the outside. I'm interested about how you're transformed on the inside. And so allow God to do surgery in your heart. Allow the gospel to affect you deeply, church. Allow the gospel to, 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 to change your heart. And, and part of what he says is he says that part of the evidence of a changed heart is that we will care for people who cannot care for themselves because we were once those people. And just like Israel, he's saying to Israel, way over here in the Old Testament, he's saying to them, you need to care for people who live in your borders but do not have rights. You need to care for orphans who do not have a voice and do not have a way to care for themselves. You need to care for widows who do not have rights, who cannot hold property, who are easily victimized. You need to do that because spiritually that's who you were. And he's telling Israel to do it for one reason and for one reason only. He's telling them to do it because he wants them to live and act in a way that's qualitatively different than all of the people around them. So that as Israel lives like that, they're testifying to who God is and they're pointing a finger to the future and they're saying, our God is going to do this for us. He's coming. And so those of us that, that now live on the other side of the cross, we even have a fuller picture of that. We have a fuller picture of understanding that while we were dead in our sin, while we had no ability to rescue ourselves, while there was not one good thing in us that merited our redemption, that Jesus stepped out of heaven and he lived a perfect life and he died the death that we deserve to die and he lives again at the right hand of the Father and he has provided for our redemption. And that when we were spiritual orphans, not, not because it was not of our own doing, we were spiritual orphans because it's completely of our own doing, completely of our own sin, that God stepped out of heaven and he came and he provided for us. So watch this. What we do then as the church when we step out to care for orphans and vulnerable children, 
what we're doing is we're, we're having the opportunity to put a taste on the lips of the world who, of who Jesus is, and we're ultimately pointing to a day when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reign. I, I've got two teenage boys, 14 and 15 years old, right? Some of you guys automatically just started praying for me because you understand. I mean, so, and our kids eat, right? My 15-year-old looks like he has a tapeworm. He's about that big around, and he never stops eating. I think he eats in his sleep. The other day, I'm not kidding you. I promise you this happened. This is not a preacher story. The other day, I walked into my kitchen. I turned the corner. He was standing in front of an open refrigerator, and he had a stick of butter in his hand. He was eating butter by itself. Just eating butter. I'm like, where's the bread? Where's the... He's like, I just like butter. I'm like, we go to the grocery store, and it looks like locusts have attacked our house within a day or so. So... Because my kids eat so much, because I'm trying to, to, to keep two teenage boys full, we love Sam's, right? We especially love Sam's on Saturday. Because that's when all the sample carts are out. As a matter of fact, Sam's is a regular stop for us on Saturday. I'm like, boys, your mom and I are going to go shop for an hour or so. You just cut laps through the sample carts and get full. Right? You know, I'm like, hey, if they start looking at you weird, just go in and like put on another jacket from the clothing section. You're just trying it on, and then maybe they won't recognize you. No, seriously, we don't do that, right? And Sam's doesn't intend for us to do that. They don't like put those sample carts out so that you can make a lunch buffet on it. They put those sample carts out because they want you to get a little bit of a taste of something that's good because they want you to go buy the 55-pound bag of it that'll go freezer burnt in your freezer before your teenage kids wise up to the fact that it's there. That's exactly what we do as the church when we care for the fatherless. When we step out and when we act on behalf of children who don't have a voice and who can't care for themselves, what we're doing is we're putting a taste on the lips of the world. We're giving them a little bit of a taste of who Jesus is and the kind of redemption that he brings. We're giving them a little bit of a taste of the world that is to come, that we know that one day Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to, he's going to bring about a world where there are no more orphans, where there are no more widows, where there are no more lines that we fight over stuff between countries when none of that stuff exists anymore because we're going to be united under one king, under one reality for eternity. And so when we help an orphan, what we're saying is that that's not right. That that's something that exists because the curse of sin exists and that we as the church are stepping in to do something about it now and, and we want to show you that we have a king that's going to do something about it for good. And ultimately, we know that that's Jesus' will for us. You say, how in the world do you know that? Well, let me point you to a passage in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is talking about the final judgment. And he says in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. You see, the, the, the point that I want to make to you here is that, that as Christians, good works are going to come out not because those are the things that save us, those don't rescue us, those don't make us righteous before Jesus. Good works are going to come out because of the transformed heart that we have and because of the change that Christ has made in our lives. Okay, here's the test. See if you're paying attention. If you squeeze a grape, what are you going to get? Grape juice, right? If you squeeze an orange, what are you going to get? Orange juice, if you squeeze a Christian, what you should get is good works. That we should be those who are out doing these kinds of good works, and, and that should be consistent with what we say and what we tell people about Jesus, and that when those two things come together, we're putting a powerful picture before the world of who our God is. And this isn't separate from gospel proclamation, it sits at the center of gospel proclamation. So let's go over one, one last passage of Scripture that I want you to look at is, is James chapter 1, verse 27, right? That's kind of the, that's sort of the verse that we hang our hat on in, in, in the orphan care world, and, and it goes something like this. Now remember, James is that annoying half-brother of Jesus that talks about this stuff about faith without works being dead, right? James is the guy that's all up in our face telling us that if we profess to have a relationship with Jesus and we profess to be a Christ follower, but we're not actually doing things that, that reflect that we're a Christ follower, if we're not actually living consistently with our words, then there's something wrong, there's something broken. And he's up in her face telling us that what we need to do is we need to put real feet to our real faith and that we need to, we need to demonstrate it into the world. And so then he says this. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now the first thing that you need to know is that when James talks about visiting orphans, the word visit in Greek, okay, you knew it was going to happen. The guy's got a doctorate. He's got to talk about Greek at some point, right? The word, the word visit in Greek is actually the same root word that we use for the word pastor, that we use for the, the word overseer, that we use for the word bishop in the New Testament. And so it actually means, it doesn't mean drive by and give an orphan a donut. What it means is, is it means to shepherd them, to lead them, to take responsibility for them, to encourage them, to help to raise them up. And in the same way that your pastors do that for you spiritually here and they feed you spiritually and they come alongside you in the hard times and they visit you when you're in the hospital and, and, and they're there when your children are born and all those things, that, that James is telling us that's the role that we're supposed to have in the lives of orphans tangibly. That we're supposed to be there for them when, when they have children born and we're supposed to be there for them when they hurt and we're supposed to be there for them when they lack and when they have need and we're supposed to be the ones that take responsibility to shepherd them. Now here's the other observation I want to make for you out of this verse, and it comes out of the last half of the verse that we very rarely talk about with regard to orphan care, that keep oneself unstained from the world thing. Now let me ask you a question. If Brother Michael was to come back off vacation next week and he were to stand here in this pulpit and he were to say to you as a congregation, hey, we've been praying about this as a staff team and we've decided that we're going to start a new ministry team, we're going to have a new committee in this church, and it's going to be the personal holiness committee. And so what we decided is, 
is that personal holiness is really something that not all of us as Christians have to pursue. We, don't, we shouldn't really strive to be like Jesus. We shouldn't strive to live like Jesus. We shouldn't worry about trying to keep ourselves holy. There are only really a few people in the church that are called out to that. So we're going to figure out who those 10 or 12 people are, and we're going to put them on a team, and we're just going to let them be holy for us. You guys would be going, man, the cheese has slid off the cracker. I don't know what happened to him on vacation, but we've got to get him some help. No, you'd think he was a heretic if he stood up here and said that to you. But we say that about things like orphan care all the time. Well, hey, that's just a calling for them. That's just something that they've been called out to do. That's, that's something, that, that's something that, that, that my life doesn't permit me to be able to do that. And so, so let, me just, let me just support other people who are. That's not the way we think. The way we have to think is that we've all been called into that ministry. Now, does that mean that everybody in this church needs to adopt or everybody needs to foster? No. Foster parents and adoptive parents are like the green berets of this deal. We're the people that are crazy enough that we'll just stick a knife between our teeth and jump out of the helicopter and figure it out on the way down, right? But everybody's not called into that role, but everyone is called to do something. I mean, we're, we're talking this morning about things that are going on in this church. You, you guys did this Operation Christmas Child thing where you took up boxes uh, and, and, and filled them with good things and put gospel tracts in them and sent them to kids all over the world. You were being responsive to James 1.27 when you did that. I'll probably get a lump in my throat saying this to you. Two of my kids were benefactors of those boxes and they knew about Jesus because somebody cared enough to pack a box and to send it. That was somebody living responsive to James 1.27. There were some, some of you guys just got back from a, a mission trip to El Salvador, is that right? Caring for orphans and, and, and doing things to meet their tangible needs and to tell them about Jesus, that's orphan care. You may want to contribute to an adoption fund and help somebody else who's going to adopt be able to adopt. One of my favorite stories in this, in this whole orphan care realm came out of a movie called Faultless. It's about the, the American foster care system and about how the church can mobilize into the foster care system and change things. There's a, there's a senior adult man named Joe who, who appears in that movie that they interviewed him. And, and he, when he comes on the screen, he, he's, he's like, I'm, my name is Joe and I do foster care. And you kind of look at him and you go, no, I don't really think you probably do do foster care. That's kind of the, the attitude that many people would look at Joe with. But Joe goes on to tell his story. He says, he says I'm a widower and, and I'm, I'm too old and the state won't even let, wouldn't even let me have a child if I was willing to take a child into my home, but I do foster care because I'm a retired guy who has time and I have a lawnmower. And so what I do is I, I go around to the foster families in our church and I cut their grass. And, and so, because, because what I figured out that I can do is that I can cut their grass and that'll give them an hour or two back where maybe they can take a nap or maybe they can love on the kids that are in their home a little bit more or, or, or maybe they can take them to a doctor's appointment that they need to or something, but they don't need to worry about cutting their grass because, because I want to help and I want to do foster care and the way that I do foster care is by cutting the grass. Praise Jesus. There's a guy that's got it. That we all have something in our hands. You saw the, the video of Godwin and Winter and, and these two kids in Togo. It, ultimately, they went to a camp where people from America came and they taught them how to raise chickens and how to plant corn. And these two brothers got that skill and, and, and they were savvy enough. Nobody even taught them this part. 
they were savvy enough that they looked at that opportunity and they said, well, wait a minute, if you raise corn and I raise chickens, then you can feed my chickens and I can fertilize your corn and we can, we can sort of have this interdependent cycle that begins. And so these two kids began to do it and they've turned, turned out a farming operation now that's making money and it's creating resources for their orphanage and they're training up other kids to be able to do it. And now they've taken it to the next step and what the video doesn't show is that those kids now are taking corn and they're taking chickens and they're going out to other orphanages and they're giving them food and they're saying hey why don't, why don't you not just let us give you food why don't you, show, why don't you let us show you how to grow this food and oh by the way the reason we're here is because we love you and we love you because there's this guy named Jesus and he's done something for us and we want to tell you about him and I'm willing to bet that there are some men and women that are in here that know how to raise chickens and know how to plant corn or you know how to work on a car, or you know how to do something, and God has placed some skill or something into your hands that would be, vo would be valuable to a vulnerable child who needs to learn a skill, who, who needs something, and it would give you the opportunity to have their ear for you to be able to tell them about Jesus and tell them what it looks like to follow Jesus for a lifetime. You know, we were talking earlier, and I, I know, you know, sometime down the road in, in, in the spring here, you guys are going to be hosting some GPS classes to train foster parents. There's some of you that are, that are listening to that, and you're, you're like going, absolutely, that's us. We've got an extra room. We've got the ability. We want to be foster parents. There's some of you that that absolutely scares you to death. Then commit to be a Joe and go cut the family's grass who's going to be a foster family, wrap around them, pray for them, engage them, take them a casserole once a week and, and, and feed them so that they don't, have to, they don't have to work on a meal and they can instead work on the kids and, and work in the trauma and the hardship that, that, that those kids have experienced who are, who are in their family and, and that they can have a little bit of margin in order to be able to show them Jesus. Folks, that's what our responsibility is. And, and I'm going to be bold, and I'm going to say something to you, and I hope you hear it in the heart that, that I say it with, but I think one of the places where we've struggled in the modern church, we, we look around and we go, man, it's hard for us to connect with young people in our culture, and why, why aren't there more young people who are out there who are wanting to follow Jesus? And I think one of the reasons is because there are many young people who look into the New Testament, and they see Jesus for who he really is, and then they look at the church and say, but I don't see the church doing things that Jesus did. And the truth is that it doesn't mean that we have to make these life-altering, cataclysmic kinds of decisions in order to be the kind of people that reflect Jesus into our culture. What we have to begin to do is to use what God has given us, what God has equipped us with, and we need to do something, a little bit of something, to step in and, and to aid those who cannot help themselves, who have no voice. There are 153 million orphans around the world, according to UNICEF. The hard statistics are that only one half of 1% of those kids can even be helped by adoption. Adoption's not the answer for them, bringing them into our country. and It is for some, but it's not for all. And so, so it's making commitments to go to them. There are 400,000 kids in foster care in America. Only 130,000 of those kids are even adoptable. So the vast majority of the kids that are in the system need help other ways. The system in America is slanted such that, that the system is, 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 has been created to seek reunification 
between birth parents and, and their kids. And so one of the reasons that kids struggle in the foster care system is because they're bounced in and out of care several times before any sort of permanency happens in their life. And they go to a foster family and then they go back home and they go to a foster family and they go back home. And the stuff that the government's doing for them isn't working. You know why it's not working? Because the only thing that's going to transform the lives of those birth parents is the gospel. And would we as the church step in? That's something we've begun to do in Jefferson County and in Shelby County and St. Clair County and in counties all over, all over Alabama is to help the church to be able to teach the classes that parents have to take, parent education classes that will help them be reunified with their children. And we've helped, we've helped churches to be able to do that in a way that they do it and they're able to tell the gospel and they're able to show the gospel and they're able to mentor those parents. And we're seeing, parent, we're seeing kids go home and stick. And the reason is not because the, the state provided anger management or, or job skill training or anything else for those parents. The reason is because those parents have a changed heart because they've started to follow Jesus. And so here's, here's sort of the, the bold invitation for you this morning. What is it that God has given you that he's calling you out to do to be responsive to James 1.27? What skill is it? What opportunity is it? What place is it that you go? What is it that you have that God is saying to you that you can use and that you can leverage in order to care for widows and orphans, in order to do more than visit them, but to pastor them, to shepherd them in a way that they can see Jesus and begin to follow Jesus? Because here's the crazy vision out there. I think the Lord is waking his church up to doing this kind of work because I think God's going to create a, an army out of those kids. And I think those kids that, that the world says are living at the margins and many of them who are worthless, I think God is saying, he, they're mine. And when my church steps up and when my church begins to help them find healing and when my church helps them to follow Jesus, that those kids are going to step up and they're going to become disciple makers and they're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. In many cases, they're going to take it to the ends of the earth because they're already there. So church, I would ask you, what, what role do you have to play? What is it that God is, is, is asking and requiring of you? And how can this church take steps together in order to show the world what this is by the way it cares for the least of these? So the invitation is pretty simple. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're saying, you know, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm at a place where I'm not even, I don't know Jesus. Well, the good news is that, that we serve a Savior and we know a Savior who cared enough about you to step out of heaven, to step out of his comfort, to live as a man, to die, to pay the penalty for your sins, and to create an opportunity for you to be reconciled with God. And so this morning, if, if that's not a relationship that you've begun, you need to. And the God of heaven's taken the first step toward you, and it's time for you to take a step toward him. There are going to be people that are going to be down here that can tell you about how to do that this morning, and I want to invite you to do it. Maybe you're here, and, and you've, you've not, like, you're not really a, a part of the church. You're just kind of on, on the outside. You're kind of hanging on the periphery, and you're trying to figure out what this thing is. Well, praise God, you're in the middle of a church that cares about its community and wants to show its community about Jesus, and they need you to come, and they need you to be a part of this. So maybe, maybe your response this morning is to say, I want to be a part of a church like this, and I want to follow Jesus here. Maybe it's just to come and pray. 
and to say, Lord, I'm open. And I don't know what this means for me, and I don't know what you're calling me to do, but Lord, I'm open to do whatever it is that you would have for me to do. My life is yours. And Lord, I, I just want you to, to help me to know what the next step is. I don't know how it is, but I can tell you this. I think anytime we've been in a place where we've been encountered by the word of God and we're, where we know that the spirit has been with us, that there are decisions that people make and there are things that we're being led and called to do. And so if, if it would help for you to be responsive and to come to this altar and to seal that decision, we want you to do that this morning. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a, a time of invitation and a time for you to respond. And I would just... I would just ask you to consider what it is that the Lord has done in your life today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that when we were orphans, when we were without hope, that God, when, when we could not save ourselves, that Lord, you sent Jesus. And Jesus, you stepped out of heaven and came for us. And, and Jesus, you did what you did so that we have the opportunity to be counted among the children of God. And Lord, I pray that truth will just rest deeply in our hearts today. And Lord, I pray that truth will motivate us to be people who will care for orphans and care for widows and care for the vulnerable as a picture of what it is that you've done for us. So Lord, we pray today that you would have freedom in this place, that your spirit would be unhindered. God, we pray for decisions that need to be made today. And Lord, we pray that your kingdom, your kingdom would come, that your kingdom would grow as a result of the things that you do here today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.